Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. All hail Rat Taleb. All hail Rat Taleb. Oh, why hello there. Good to see you. This is Troy Hongs with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Welcome back. Have you ever watched a movie and hated it, but then later in your life loved it? For me, the movie There Will Be Blood is like that. I thought that it was this action movie, and I kept waiting for the action, and it was horrible. It was the worst movie I ever watched, and I lived with that opinion for eight years until my friend infected my mind with a new perspective. It wasn't an action movie, rather a complex catalog of two sociopaths, both complete lizard people trying to dominate their respective environments, one through starting a company, one through a church, and ultimately their battle was played out on the time scale of their lives. And that new idea, after hearing that and rewatching it, I can honestly say it is one of my top three favorite movies. I even take business inspiration from Daniel Plainview, which I'm not sure if that's a good thing or not, but here we are. And so I told my friend, I said, thanks, man, you opened my mind. And I just wondered how many other things are there out there like that, that I've kind of just irrationally hated, and I'm just wrong. And in, in the realm of audiobooks, I really enjoy a good narrator, and I can't stand a shitty narrator. The worst example of this was that book, Hero with a Thousand Faces. A bunch of people way smarter than me said, hey, Joseph Campbell, it's this universal hero's journey of the human narrative. So I got it. And I'm like, hell yeah, this is going to be awesome. But I honestly couldn't get past the horrible British narrator who, I kid you not, within the first hour of the book said the phrase, and then the great snake ate the child's foreskin and the universe was created. Said that phrase five or six times. And I said, even though, you know, Ray Dalio, you're baller of ballers, I had to turn it off because I couldn't fucking deal with the British guy talking about baby dicks. And I have a confession. This book started out as one of those. I listened to three quarters of it on Audible, and I couldn't get over the fact that the narrator was annoying. And when he quoted Taleb having a bad attitude, it actually made Taleb like kind of come across as a dick which is fine if you're reading it and you know like I'm trying to picture him in my mind but hearing a crappy narrator try to fill the size 800 shoes of Rat Taleb all it did was trigger my inner disagreeable nature and I wanted to respond with what bitch or like you think you can kick my ass so I gave up I was like I get it it's, it's important to make sure you got skin in the game got it but after my brother Jordy and I did the Black Swan and Anti-Fragile podcast a tiny virus of an idea, one might even say a meme, spontaneously generated in my mind. And it was that we'd be dishonoring Bushido, and ultimately we'd be better off cutting our stomachs than carrying on living if we didn't ultimately cover Taleb's entire Incerto, five books, on the podcast. And then, like doing farmer's carries in the scary dark forest at 5 a.m. and briefly thinking like, oh, good thing I'm not scared of the dark and then immediately being fucking scared of the dark. I, uh, I just shut down that line of thinking because that sounded so hard. But then one evening, 
a couple whiskeys deep, but still on the path. Actually, okay, on Twitter, I saw a screenshot of someone who'd ordered all five books and tagged Taleb, and he responded. And I took that opportunity to force our corpses, and I tagged Jordy, and I said, I commit that in the next two years, we will cover the Incerto on this podcast. And he immediately responded, because he was also on the path, okay, just on Twitter, at that hour, and he said, let this tweet go down in history, it must be done. And that is how we've arrived at this place, my praise. Skin in the game, Nassim Taleb. And before I go any deeper, I once again have the honor, nay, the responsibility of having my brother Jordy Long here to co-host. Let's go listen to the Black Swan episode for a full introduction, but if I can continue the trend of just oversimplifying everything, here's a quick bio on Jordy. He's half Asian, uh, the slightly more contemplative version of me. Uh, we first met long ago on the bus to Black Belt Camp where we, where we realized, A, we're basically the same person, and B, we both wanted fucking jacked lats. He was the best Taekwondo student that ever came through the Taekwondo school. I've never seen him make the same mistake twice in his entire life. Think about that. And he's one of those super real dudes who always dated the hottest women who all like immediately fell in love with him and tried to capture him forever. And uh, he had to like escape. And uh, he was once retweeted by an actual Playboy playmate. And just like Martin Luther didn't come for years when he was working on his 99 theses in the pursuit of being a Kusemono, Jordy's taken a vow of celibacy, moved to Miami to pursue untold riches in the crypto space. And as kids these days say, he's in the fucking game. Jordy, welcome. Ah, sorry, I was just sipping on some uh, Ripito Bud Light. Yeah. <sighs> Man, thanks for the, uh, that was the best bio I've ever had said about me. Yeah, happy to, man. And I guess we got to just tell everyone because so Mark Ripito has this recipe for Bud Light and he says, uh, you know, it's basically the same thing as just Everclear and seltzer water. Don't be a pussy. So we got some Everclear and seltzer water here and, and it's really bad, actually. Yeah, it's not great, but it is effective. Uh, I can't even like <sighs> sigh in contentment because it's so disgusting, but <sighs> I do it for you, Mark Ripito and Asim Taleb. All hail. So welcome, man. We're Thanks. back here again. And I guess we just start off with, you know, I think you had been an early adopter to this book. And again, I'm over there like getting triggered by it. So I, I wasn't as up on, on the skin in the game game uh, as you, but what, what, uh, what attracted you to this book? Why, why uh, was it impactful for you? Okay. Well, I had started off by reading, I think the Black Swan was the first Taleb book that I wrote or read. Um, I wish I wrote. And then that just got me down the rabbit hole because like, well, let me try out, uh, you know, Fooled by Randomness or Anti-Fragile. And I think Skin in the Game was the last one I read. I think it's maybe the shortest one, except for that one that's like all parables or whatever. Yeah. Or like and little... I'm still like prejudiced against that one, but I'm going to try to be open-minded. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of weird. I haven't but, read it though. Yeah. Anyway, don't kill me, Taleb. Yeah, anyway, Skin in the Game was good because it takes this theme of asymmetries and just applies it to the human condition in my opinion. So if I, had to, if I had to summarize, Black Swan is about the asymmetry of the situation where you say, no matter how many white swans I've seen, one black swan can disrupt my entire theory 
for years and years of observing white swans that all swans are white. So there's an asymmetric uh, balance of information. They prefer to be called Caucasian. Oh, go on, go on. Then antifragile is about asymmetry in effects from randomness or time or like life. what to do about it so the black swan paints that picture of like oh god damn it there's nothing you can do and then anti-fragile explains how there's three things there's the fragile the robust and the anti-fragile and then like what to do about it yeah and i would almost still say that it leans towards just describing reality mm. like this is the way the world works there are things that are fragile where you know if i jump off one meter a one meter ledge i get x pain if i jump off a three meter ledge i get nine x pain if so, you jump off a 30 meter ledge you get, you get no it, pain because you're dead yeah infinity yeah. pain all right but it's not linear it's yep. not linear and the same is true with benefits for certain things that are anti-fragile for skin in the game to me i thought about this and what i took away is that it, no it notices there are asymmetries in life and says now because of that how do you live your life behave act in the world knowing that there's asymmetries so how do you set up your incentives your relationships do you enter into a contract with someone who has uh an asymmetric situation where they're they they accrue benefits but you accrue the costs same things stuff like that so i feel like skin in the game is takes all of the asymmetric ideas and applies it to behavior like do like how do you choose to act in the world knowing this information yeah. so that's why i liked it because at the end of the day you have to at the end of the day, everything's like a moral choice of, okay, this is what how the world is, but you end up facing your day like there's a fork in the road. Do you take left path or right path? That's not like a scientific question. That's like a behavioral, ethical, moral question. Right. Like, you do you listen to the doctor who is just trying to prescribe you the craziest antibiotics yep. to cover their ass, or do you not? Yes. And that's science, or even just what the black swan and antifragile cover, they don't really tell you the answer to that. They just describe the the situation. It's up to you to decide to make a choice in that matter. And I think Skin in the Game addresses that. So I thought Skin in the Game is a nice uh, nightcap to the Enchero to right. really uh, end it. Wonderful. Yeah, I came around to that viewpoint after uh, being very prejudiced and disagreeable towards it the first time I listened to it. Wonderful. So who? Yeah, and, and Jordy's coughing because he's actually <laughs> drinking Everclear and water in honor inhaled. of Mark Ripito. Yeah, I just inhaled that. That wasn't good. We're adults. Who is Nassim Taleb? Well, go listen to Anti-Fragile and the Black Swan series that, that Jordy and I did for full context. But I'm going to give, again, a dismissive summary. Uh, Nassim Taleb is jacked, rich, and dare I say, a god among men. Uh, he grew up in Lebanon, and that's the country. He once hit a cop in the head with a brick and uh, maybe started a decades-long war. Uh, he read books, he got in fights, growing up in his youth he didn't give a fuck, and he, he took that unruly perspective to the Western world where he got his MBA from Wharton. And then he uh, worked on Wall Street as a deeply quantitative trader, uh, specializing in finding errors in everyone else's model, betting against those hidden fragilities, which we, we went so hard on the Anti-Fragile podcast talking about. Until in 1987, he won the bet of bets. He made 30 million smackers in a day. He got fuck you money. He threw away all his ties, and he embarked on the path of being an independently wealthy philosopher here to teach us about life, probability, and how to fucking win. And his worldview is the unfiltered truth. Uh, even if 
That truth involves rocking out with his cock out at a formal investment conference, and he once shouted at 2,000 nice Koreans because they didn't understand probability well enough, and he's friends with Mark Ripito. Here we fucking go. Into the book, Skin in the Game, Hidden Asymmetries in Life. This book, while standalone, is a continuation of the Incerto Collection, which is a combination of practical discussions, philosophy, and analytic commentary on the problem of randomness, how to live, how to eat, how to argue, how to fight, how to befriend, work, have fun, and ultimately make decisions under uncertainty, aka life. Skin in the Game is about four topics that we're going to kind of like rudely and dismissively cover on this podcast. One, uncertainty and the reliability of knowledge, or in in less polite terms, bullshit detection. Two, symmetry in human affairs. That is justice, fairness, responsibility in our world. Three, information sharing in transactions. Four, rationality in complex systems and in the world. That these four cannot be disentangled is something that is obvious when one has skin in the game. It is not just that skin in the game is necessary for fairness, it is necessary for understanding the world. First, bullshit identification. That's a difference between theory and practice. As Yogi Berra, some baseball plan, I think actual bear said, uh, in academia, there's no difference between academia and the real world. In the real world, there is. Second, it's about the distortions of symmetry in life. You know, if if you have the reward, if you have the rewards, you must have some of the risk. You you must not let others pay for your mistakes. So it's the don't tell me what you think, tell me what's in your portfolio concept. Third, it's that what's that information that we should or shouldn't be sharing with each other? You know, what the used car sale, what the used car salesman should or shouldn't tell you, what you should ask the doctor to understand what position he or she is in. And fourth, it's about rationality. And this isn't rationality in the sense of some New Yorker article about some psychological experiment using, and I think this is a quote, bullshit first order models but something, something vastly deeper and statistical linked to our own survival. But do not mistake skin in the game as defined here as just an incentive problem, just having to share the benefits. And he says, as it's commonly understood in finance. No, it's about symmetry, more like having a share of the harm, paying a penalty if something goes wrong. The very same ideas tie together notions of incentives, used car buying, municipal power, risk science, accountability to the bureaucracy, bullshit vendors, theology. I stop for now. In other words, it's the goddamn way. And he says the main idea of this book is done in like 60 pages, but he says only pussies engage in endless over explanation on why something's important if it's just important. So the real interesting part, and this is what Jordy was saying a little bit, is that he, he goes to the second step and he brings up a bunch of surprising implications, those hidden asymmetries that don't immediately come to mind. Uh, because understanding skin in the game allows us to understand serious puzzles underlying the fine-grained reality of the world. For instance, how is it that maximally intolerant minorities run the world and impose their tastes on us? You know, not too long ago, calling something gay was so common that the brother in E.T. 
that uh, children's alien movie with that ugly little alien in the basket, addresses his other brother as, hey, penis breath, penis breath. But nowadays, there are certain combinations of sounds that, if uttered by a human in public, immediately get them canceled. You've made the forbidden sound, burn the witch. So Skin in the Game explains that. And then also why you shouldn't give money to organized charities unless they operate in a highly decentralized manner. Why do genes and languages spread differently? And much, much more. But to this author, Mr. Glove, Skin in the Game is mostly about justice, honor, and sacrifice, aka becoming a Kusemono. Now, let us connect a few dots in the items just discussed with two vignettes, just to give a flavor of how the idea transcends categories. Antaeus from Greek mythology. Uh, some god guy, maybe. He was jacked, uh, the literal son of Mother Earth and Poseidon, uh, who's the god of the sea. And Antaeus had this weird occupation where he would uh, force people passing by him to wrestle him, but like not in a weird way. Uh, his thing was to pin his victims to the ground and crush them. And this macabre hobby was apparently his misguided attempt at being a good son, um, since he like wanted to build this giant-ass temple honoring his father with the raw material. You guessed it, skulls of his enemies. But he was also deemed invincible. But there was a trick. He derived his power from contact with his mother, Earth. Physically separated from Earth, he lost all his powers. And Hercules, as part of his 12 labors, had for homework, and this is a quote, to whack Antaeus. Uh, Hercules managed to lift Antaeus off the ground and terminate him by crushing him in the world's first death by barbell row. We retain from this vignette that, just like Antaeus, you cannot separate knowledge from contact with the ground. And actually, you can't separate anything from contact with the ground. And the contact with the real world is done via skin in the game. Having an exposure to the real world and paying a price for the consequences, good or bad. The abrasions to your skin guide your learning and discovery. And he says, I've shown in Anti-Fragile that most things that we believe were invented by universities were actually discovered by tinkering and later legitimized by some type of formalization. The knowledge we get from tinkering via trial and error, in other words, contact with the earth is vastly superior to what we to what can be obtained through reasoning so that was the first vignette and the, the next one he's going to bring up uh, libya and so Antaeus apparently was like 2000 years ago in libya um, but nowadays in libya it's still not a great place and there's active slave markets there how well Taleb brings up the example that a group of people he calls intervention interventionistas did the fuckery known as reg regime change to remove a dictator. So these interventionistas and their friends in the U.S. State Department were like, oh man, there's, there's a dictator. Let's help them do regime change. And so they helped train and support Islamist rebels who at, the, at that time were moderate, but who eventually evolved into Al-Qaeda. Yeah, the very same Al-Qaeda that blew up the Twin Towers. So we've tried this a bunch. We've tried this thing called regime change in Iraq. Didn't work. We tried it in Libya, active slave markets in modern day. But we satisfied the specific objective of removing a dictator. By that exact same reasoning, a doctor would just inject a patient 
with moderate cancer cells to improve his cholesterol numbers and proudly claim victory after his patient is dead, particularly if the post-mortem shows remarkable cholesterol numbers. So basically, hey, look, the cholesterol's so good, but that's a dead body, man. The three flaws with these idiots. One, they think in statics, not dynamics. Two, they think in low, not high dimensions. Three, they think in terms of actions, never interactions. We will see in more depth throughout the book this defect in mental reasoning by educated fools. And see, he's going to flesh out those three defects real quick. Uh, so the first flaw is that they are incapable of thinking in second steps and unaware of the need for them. And so I think we see this with COVID. You know, your grandma can die from the COVID vaccine. It could still be the right decision for everybody to get it. And overlaid on all of that is your opinion or, or my opinion or whatever that the government shouldn't mandate. So I, I feel like people don't really see those second layers, man. My Twitter brain just exploded with the nuance. Yeah. Twitter is a cesspool for that, I've, I've found. Yeah, there's no nuance. So that opinion would be immediately just not allowed. And Taleb just goes so hard on Twitter. Like, I can't remember if I cut this or not, but he says, like, a privilege of being a self-actualized man is being able to swear on Twitter just to show his freedom. Yeah, I mean, well, he must be a self-actualized man then. Yeah, I always find myself like cutting it out. Yeah, he's always, he'll, someone will type like, hey, if you look at this chart, it looks like it's slightly higher than what you may maybe said before. And he's just like, fuck you. Yeah, I think he said fuck you to a blue checkmarked financial, uh, like financial journalist lady. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So people don't do nuance. Second flaw is that they are also incapable of distinguishing between multi-dimensional problems and their single-dimensional representations. So the multi-dimensional aspect of health versus the single representation of cholesterol. They just can't get the idea that complex systems do not have obvious one-dimensional cause and effect mechanisms. And under opacity, which if we remember that's ain't no one can predict shit, you shouldn't mess with such a system. And the third flaw, is that we can't predict anything. We can't forecast the evolution of those uh, of those interventions you do. You know, you go, hey, let me go help remove a dictator, and all of a sudden, oops, we created ISIS. And when a blow-up happens, these people proclaim it was a black swan instead of realizing that one should not mess with a complicated, fucking insane system if the results are fraught with uncertainty and have a huge downside in unclear outcomes. What is also crucial here is that the downside doesn't doesn't affect the intervention interventionistas who continue to live in a giant ass house. And so that's a key point of this whole thing. So think of the analogy of a pilot. Okay. You know, a wild, crazy fucking pilot going insane. You know, he's United Airlines. He's shotgunning beers before the flight. He might kill a lot of people, but he would also kill himself. That's the key. So we end up populating what we call the intelligentsia with people who are delusional, literally mentally deranged, he says, simply because they never have to pay for the consequences of their actions. And they repeat modernist slogans like tax the rich or eat the poor. But after these interventions happen, innocent people pay the price while the interventionistas sit in their comfortable offices. It makes me think of like a pilot versus a drone pilot like if you're a if you're a drone pilot you're almost just playing a video game 
and you can just do the cost benefit analysis like, oh, you know what? It is the rational thing to do to crash my drone into this compound. But if you're doing it, if you're flying a plane, that mental calculus is a little bit different. Yeah. What I'm taking from all this is that there's a million things in a complex system that can go wrong. And it's so hard to either, one, predict what the thing is going to be that goes wrong, or two, understand what even could happen. You need some kind of way to distill all of those potential futures that are terrible into one noticeable metric and that metric seems to be just pain and the only way you see pain is with skin in the game mm. you're looking jacked by the way thanks man i gained like 20 pounds by eating cheeseburgers and doing five doing fucking fives <laughs> and so we uh we have an insane quote here which is we've always been crazy but we weren't skilled enough to destroy the world now we can so here we fucking go the idea of skin in the game is woven into history. Historically, all warlords and warmongers, so people who are like, let's do war, they were warriors themselves. And with a few exceptions, societies were run by risk takers, not risk transferers. The Roman Emperor Julian the Apostle actually died on the battlefield fighting while emperor. Think about that. Like, you know, that's like Joe Biden is leading a fucking bayonet charge ain't happening nowadays the last byzantine empire emperor constantine paleogus was last seen when he removed his purple toga i don't know if that if he had clothes on under it or if he, he became nude but him and his cousin uh, charged turkish troops naked maybe with their swords above their head proudly facing certain death and some people think that freeing ourselves from having warriors at the top means civilization and progress but Taleb says it does not bureaucracy is a construction by which a person is conveniently separated from the consequences of his or her actions and one may ask what can we do since a centralized system will necessarily need people who are not directly exposed to the cost of errors I mean, it'd be real inconvenient if like you know every president got killed on the battlefield like this is hard for continuity what do we do well, we need to decentralize to have a fewer to have fewer of those immune decision makers. But don't worry, if we do not decentralize and distribute responsibility, it'll happen by itself the hard way. A system that doesn't have a mechanism for skin in the game will eventually blow up and self-repair that way. The king, demanding greater and greater taxes from the poor peasants, eventually gets beheaded. And he says, "Now, if you're going to highlight a single section from this book, here's one. The interventionista's case is central to our story because it shows how absence of skin in the game has ethical and epistemological, so that's like related to knowledge, effects. We saw that interventionistas don't learn because they aren't a victim of their own mistakes. If you're that drone pilot, you're not feeling that pain. There's no skin in the game. More practically, you will never convince anyone that they are wrong. Only reality can do that. And so I feel like I like to just throw in martial arts stories, but it's the way, it's, it's what's gonna happen. So when I was training at that full contact karate school, they would, they had like a lot of reality mixed with kind of like ninja fuckery. So like overall it was good. It was like a little bit shittier than kickboxing, but um, they would like their ready stance, they would start in like a double knife hand block, which, if you're uh if you're just listening just i don't know just think like put your hands 
I don't know. Put your hands on the stove. That's like how they'd start, basically. And so I would always just have my hands up. And I was the new guy because I did, you know, I was there for that internship. I only did it for six months. And I didn't spar the way they did. And so I just had my hands up. But eventually, though, after me, like, jab crossing everyone in the fucking head, like, 30 or 40 times, including the instructor, they started to mysteriously have their hands up. And then we went to this national tournament and we taught everyone else through blunt force trauma to their brains that having your hands up is the right thing to do. Reality was the teacher. This is like when, uh, which, which Gracie was it when, who entered the UFC? We'll oh, just call God. him Gracie. Oh, yeah, we, we're going to get judged by everyone. That's okay. Well, I'll just call him Gracie. Yeah, it's like the first UFC when you have like a karate guy, a kung fu guy, yeah. a, a Muay Thai guy, just all come into the UFC. And then this little Brazilian comes along in a full gi and just wraps his skeleton around people's throats and just chokes them out. Because if you don't have skin in the game, in a sense that like, it's really easy to just start a cult and convince people you got magic. And then like everybody starts falling down because you knocked them over with your chi. But the skin in the game is that reality of getting actually kicked in the mouth. If you're, you're like, oh, I'm going to try it. I'm going to block you with my chi. And you're like, oh, I actually just got a foot in my actual mouth. Yeah, even even other reasonable sounding martial arts like karate or taekwondo, I feel like are better than, you know, whatever, chi blocking. But jujitsu is like the ultimate skin in the game martial art where maybe boxing is there too. But jujitsu is like you either got choked or you didn't. Right. You can go as hard as you can and totally simulate real life with like a couple rules and it's not like, well, you know, I would have I would have gotten him if they'd done this. I would have grabbed his nutsack. Yeah, it's almost like the, the advantage of jiu-jitsu is that you can go full contact for so many iterations a day that you just are just getting a fire hose to the face of reality. And what that does is you end up with a martial art that's just been forged by the fires of reality. And then when you come into the UFC, you just strangle everyone. Yeah. And that principle applies to the world. Because there's a lot of people who don't have any skin in the game who are like five levels deep about, oh, you know, my damn Tai Chi, I can, I'm going to do Qi Gong. I'm going to set this paper on fire with my hands. And so they believe in their ability to forecast. The more people believe in their ability to forecast, the more they hate skin in the game. The more people worship the state, the more they hate skin in the game. And finally, as we wrap up just the fucking first prologue, the more they wear suits and ties, the more they hate skin in the game. Returning to our interventionistas, we saw that people don't learn so much from their mistakes and others. Rather, it is the system that learns from selecting those less prone to a certain class of mistakes and eliminating others. Systems learn by removing parts. So think of all the bad pilots and the, and the bad drivers that are currently dead. Transportation didn't get safer because people learn from errors, but because the system does. So to, to summarize so far, skin in the game is what keeps human hubris in check. Let us go deeper with the second part of the fucking prologue and consider the notion of symmetry. Prologue part two, <laughs> a brief tour of symmetry. Skin in the game style symmetry until the recent intellectualization of life has been implicitly considered the principal rule for organized society. To put it another way, it had to prevail or life would have been extinct because risk transfer blows up systems. 
So let us briefly travel the road from Hammurabi to present day, where the rule gets refined along with civilized life. 3,800 years ago, carved in stone, Hammurabi's laws, 282 laws, had one central theme. It established symmetries between people in a transaction, so nobody could transfer hidden tail risk. What is a tail? Take for now that it is an extreme event of low frequency. It is called a tail because in drawings of bell curves, it is located to the extreme left or right, being of low frequency. And for some reason beyond my immediate understanding, people started calling it a tail. Hammurabi's best known injunction is as follows. If a builder builds a house and the house collapses and causes the death of the owner of the house, the builder should be put to death. For, as with financial traders, the best place to hide risks is in the corners, in burying vulnerabilities to rare events that only the architect or the trader can detect. And as one old alcoholic ruddy-faced English banker told Taleb when he graduated from business school, I only give long-term loans. When they mature, I want to be long gone, only reachable by a long distance. And Taleb makes sure to clarify that he doesn't like actually want to kill people who build houses, just bring back some form of punishment. Like if a sales rep sells a faulty airplane, they need to be somehow held accountable, not like burned alive, but somehow. And then um, he traces how like there's Hammurabi's code and then we went to the golden rule, like do under others as you wanted them to do under you. And then the silver rule, don't do things to others you wouldn't want them to do to you, which if you think about it, the First Amendment is really just that. Uh, effectively, there's no democracy without such an unconditional symmetry in the rights to express yourself. And the gravest threat is the slippery slope in the attempts to limit free speech on the grounds that some of it may hurt some people's feelings. Such restrictions do not necessarily come from the state itself, rather from the forceful establishment of an intellectual monoculture by an overactive thought police in the media and cultural life. I think he's getting a little triggered. I think the, uh, the Second Amendment applies as well, because if you, the government's basically the oversimplified version is just that it's a monopoly on violence because we have decided that it is better to have a few people be able to kill someone if they break collective rules than to just have a free-for-all. But the Second Amendment, Second Amendment helps keep some symmetry where you go, hey, if other people, though, start, even if the officials start breaking some of these rules, I have the right to defend myself and turn it around on them. That is such a fucking crazy point. And I'm three quarters of the way through this book called The Sovereign Individual. Oh, man. Have you heard of it? Yeah, I read it. Oh, damn it. I'm, dude, it's like, I'm about to convince that the government's going to dissolve, but whatever. Um, but it's such an interesting, nuanced point where I don't know the right answer, but, you know, for the longest time, it was who had the monopoly on violence was who had the power. And so, you know, nation states, they have a huge monopoly on violence. But as the internet comes up and as crypto and decentralization, you know, the if the government's like, hey, like think of COVID restrictions, you know, like in Australia, they were like, we're going to fucking arrest you to the point of you're breaking the law and we're going to, you know, attack you to the ground, even if you're a grandma for not wearing a mask. But they wouldn't try that in Tennessee because of the Second Amendment. But like, there's also negatives where you know crazy people go shoot a bunch of people, which is not cool. But yeah, it's um, 
new complicated and nuanced. Well, there's no skin in the game if you have guns and you're trying to enforce laws for you to just say, oh, what if I just sort of like distort them a little bit so I get a little bit more benefit than they do? What are they going to do about it? Right, because you've got no skin in the game. You're like, pretty please don't. And you're like, shut cool. up. Cool, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Okay, from Kant to Fat Tony. So I cut out Kant, Emmanuel Kant. He does this like categorical imperative. I studied him in philosophy class. Like, how should one act? And uh, Taleb's just basically like, Kant's an idiot. So that, that's, that's the summary. Uh, so let us move to the present, to the transactional present. In New Jersey, symmetry can simply mean in Fat Tony's terms. And if you remember, Fat Tony's this character that's in all the Incerto books because Taleb's rich and lives in an attic and he just likes to do crazy shit. And uh, so in Fat Tony's terms, don't give crap, don't take crap. His more practical approach is, Start by being nice to every person you meet, but if somebody tries to exercise power over you, exercise power over them. And uh, Celeb just points out that Fat Tony is a character who in demeanor, behavior, choices, uncertainty, conversation, lifestyle, food habits, and beliefs would be the exact opposite of your state department analyst. This symmetry thing happens. Oh, so this symmetry thing happens to link directly to my own profession. So this is Taleb saying the profession of being an option trader. In an option, one person, the buyer, contractually has the upside, future gains. The other, the seller, has a liability for the downside, future losses, for a pre-range price. So risk is transferred for a fee. This symmetry thing also concerns the alignment of interests in a transaction. So think about if a banker can accrue profits while their losses are sneakily transferred to other people, hidden tail risks will continually increase until final blow up. That would never happen. Yeah. Well, I think you brought it up on one of the podcasts, but like the moral hazard concept. Oh. Where how if you're like, you know, hey, the government's going to bail out your bank. Okay. So uh, I can give loans to anyone. They're like, yeah, everybody deserves a house. Okay. And then you start, you still make the commissions, you still make the profits, but you're transferring that risk to the whole system by giving crazy loans to fucking people who want to start a butterfly farm. And if you disagree, I would just say, don't you care about the unhoused? Yeah. Look at that person. That, that person, they don't even have clothes. Give them a house. And this brings us to what is known as the agency problem. Let us flush out the idea of agency as studied by insurance companies. Simply, you know a lot more about your health than any insurer would. So you have an incentive to get an insurance policy when you detect an illness before someone knows about it. So, you know, I'm kind of feeling my nuts and I'm like, whoa, that, that nut feels bigger than the other one. You know what? Let me go get some life insurance just in case. And then, you know, you go, but like, you feel your nuts every day, five times a day. You go see the doctor. They've never felt your specific nuts before. So they're like, well, that's kind of like a weirdly shaped nut, but it's probably fine. Turns out it was cancer, but you, and you die. And it's very sad for you, but you win because you get the life insurance policy because your incentive is as soon as you maybe detect an illness before anybody else knows about it, you go get the insurance policy which as a risk transfer causes a rise in premia, I think that means the plural of premium, paid by all sorts of innocent people. And so insurance companies have, you know, um, filters like high deductible and other methods to eliminate such imbalances. But that uh, agency problem, or also called the principal agent problem, 
manifests itself in the in the misalignment of interests in transactions, and it's everywhere. Uh, Mr. Joy Long, do you happen to have any thoughts or examples on that? I do. Uh, I was trying to think about my own life and find examples of where I've noticed this. And one example was in college. I was a musician, playing music around town, all this stuff. And I remember there was a th- several people in the university who were very talented, like skilled at their instrument. Like they could play any scale at any tempo on a guitar oh, or something. Sorry. I just had a bit of some Bud Light. Bud Light. Sorry. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it slaps you in the soul. Anyway. Um, I knew very skilled musicians, like you could play any scale on any guitar at any speed, whatever. But they played the weirdest music, and it was like always so bizarre and obscure. And you're like, what? What are you even playing? You're so good, but you're not. I don't understand it. And we'd go out to like play, I don't know, some jazz gig at a nice restaurant or something that they hired some jazz trio to play at. And I'm looking at them like, what are you doing? And eventually, I figured out why people some people played music that i don't know other people would like and other people didn't is that some musicians in that university would play music and they would never listen to what they played Hmm. they would never think about like if i'm trying to eat my chicken parmesan what kind of music do i want to listen to lauren shore yes but they would never do that and so all they were incentivized to do was to see how many musical chops and flares and things that they could execute in the time frame of a song. That doesn't equal a good song though. And so the key was, I noticed is that I gotta put myself in the position of eating my chicken parm, taking out a date or with my family or something like that, and then play what would make sense for that environment. But they never put themselves in that agent position. Mm. They were just the principal position and they're like, you people get to listen to whatever I end up spitting out of my instrument. Good luck. Enjoy it. Versus saying, what if I had to actually listen to that? I just noticed that and and the university kind of hides that feedback from reality. And so you end up getting a lot of weird, strange ass music coming from colleges and universities versus like a skilled recording artist is always recording themselves. They're always quote unquote eating their own cooking you end up getting some much more enjoyable music out of that. That's one example. I have one more. Go. Uh, uh, guy I'm working for, he's a crypto whatever dude, uh, Anthony Pompliano. He was an investor. He's an investor. I love you, Pomp. Pomp. Actually, he just quit doing this, but he was, he's was he been an investor for several years where basically he knew a lot about the crypto space. Other rich people wanted to invest in it, but they didn't know anything about it. They said, hey, Pomp, can I give you some money? You go invest it for me, and then hopefully you turn that money into more money, and then you give it back to me. That was his job. Well, the common structure for that investor was something called 2 and 20, where you would uh, take a 2% fee every year for holding other people's money, and then you would also take 20% of the profits that you would make each year before returning money mm. to investors. It's like a hedge fund model. Hedge fund model, exactly. Well, he did a very, uh, a little bit of a different model where he put more skin in the game, put more of his skin in the game. He said, instead of two and 20, I'm gonna go zero and 30. Dang. So he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get paid zero dollars and then, in fact, I'll lose money because of opportunity cost of having to deal with your investments all year. Yeah, dealing with your bitch ass. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No offense. I'll take 0% carry, meaning I don't get paid anything just for having your money. But if you do make, if we do make money on these investments, I get a big chunk of it. But good news, you do too. So congratulations. Dude, such a good example. That is, it's cold-blooded. That is. Let us take skin in the game one step further. Skin in the game is about the real world, not appearances. You don't want to win the argument. 
you want to win. And I'll tell I like pisses on entire fields like psychology and sociology because there's nothing connecting them back to earth. He says, you want to ignore all the reasons people give you, but look at what they do. Like, I love you, I love you, I love you, but you're texting a bunch of chicks. Ah, you probably don't love me. Forecasting in words bears no relation to speculation in deeds. So what that's basically saying is, it doesn't matter what you say you believe in, but if you, you know, it matters what you put your money behind. Skin in the game helps solve the black swan problem and other matters of uncertainty at the level of both the individual and the collective. What has survived has revealed its robustness to black swan events and removing skin in the game disrupts such selection mechanisms. Those who talk should do, and only those who do should talk. Skin in the game brings simplicity, the disarming simplicity of things properly done. Things designed by people without skin in the game tend to grow in complication before their final collapse. Because there's absolutely no benefit for someone in such a position to propose something simple. When you get rewarded for perception, you need to show sophistication. So in sales, um, you know, there's, there's private sector and public sector. So private sector is like, you know, you run a $150 million company and I'm like, Hey bitch, you need data analytics. You're like, yeah. And then we sign the DocuSign. It's great. Public sector is like the municipality of Carmel, Indiana needs data analytics, but the way that, you know, the, they, they, you know, they're not as close and connected to the earth as a private business. And so, you know, they basically put out these RFPs. Do you know what that is? No. Okay. Request for proposal. So basically, and there's all these freaking rules because they're like in the misguided attempt to be efficient, it's actually like way worse. So they put out like a, like a 40 page document and you're not allowed to like talk to them. You're not allowed to influence them. You're not allowed to really sell them. And it's, Hey, we want data analytics. We want these 25 buckets. If you want to play, do a proposal exactly the way that we say. But the problem is you, they don't know what they don't know. It'd be like me going to a spine surgeon and being like, okay, I want a micro discectomy. And then I want you to come in and, and lengthen the penis. And then I want you to do this. And then I want a face tattoo. And the, the back doctor's like, bro, but your penis is giant. Like you don't, you don't need anything more. I'm like, oh, okay. So it's so hard because really the way to, to help them best is to have a human conversation, figure out their needs, but they've got no incentive to do that. They, they just have incentive to show, look, I'm really serious. I have this 40 page document. Yeah. It's not that they don't have incentives. It's that they have a different incentive than you. They don't, ha- they don't care about having a successful transaction necessarily. They also care about getting reelected. Right. Cause people have two brains, one where there's skin in the game and one in their penis. What? 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 And one where there is none. Skin in the game can make boring things less boring. When you have skin in the game, dull things like checking the safety of the aircraft you're about to ride become real interesting. But then there's an even more vital dimension. Many addicts who normally have a dull intellect, and I quote, and the mental nimbleness of a cauliflower, are capable of the most ingenious tricks to procure drugs. 
when they are in a rehab or when they are in rehab, they make they get comments like, man, if you spent half your mental energy you used to find drugs, making money, you'd be rich. But to no avail. Without the addiction, their miraculous powers go away. Now for me, we're going to close this episode up with a story of addiction. Now, um, I'm not addicted to alcohol, though I do like it. Let me take a sip of Bud Light. I just finished mine. Ooh, so bad. But I'm addicted to lifting. And so I've wanted to get huge for as long as I can remember. And in college, I wanted to be a part of the team, and I was really intrigued by drinking, but I didn't want to compromise my gains. And I also didn't really understand how to drink. I thought it was kind of like estimating grams of protein. Like, oh, I need to have 30 grams of protein in this meal. I was like, oh, I need to have 6.5 grams of alcohol in a coffee mug and chug it. So needless to say, through just a very shitty process, I accidentally, truly accidentally blacked out like 20 times and got insanely horrible hangovers a couple times. But one day after a night of uh, something loosely called drinking, I remember going to our cafeteria and still trying to be dedicated to lifting. So I was like getting a pre-workout shake with 60 grams of protein to counteract the 15 shots of vodka that I'd consumed the night before because I wasn't a pussy. But I also didn't understand hangovers and I was like so sick. And I was like, man, I must be getting the flu. I don't feel well. But again, wasn't a pussy. And I slammed that brown viscous liquid and I began the walk back to my dorm to change and then go work out. But halfway through, and this is in the middle of campus, I remember being like, oh, oh dear. Oh, my stomach. I remember sitting down next to the music building, walking back, and I just knew that I was going to projectile vomit. But my trade craft was decent, and so I crouched down like I was trying to tie my shoe, and I sneakily projectile vomited a four-foot, 64-ounce stream of brown vomit with like 40 people around me. And then I stood up and I got away with it. And then for four weeks, that... I would be like walking to class, you know, there's this four foot stream of brown vomit in front of the nice music building. All the prospective students coming to see DePaul got to see it. I was even with a group of people who were like, man, whoever did this is so inconsiderate. And I'm like, yeah, they're horrible. But that, that addiction to lifting, that skin in the game of trying to get huge has driven me to behavior I'd never have engaged in if I didn't have that skin in the game. I remember the uh, in college, this is completely unrelated, which will be good for the podcast. I discovered my favorite uh, model, strategy, whatever for drinking is one day me and my friend got on campus. My friend was coming to visit. We visit his, rest in peace, alcoholic uh, father who lived right like five minutes from campus. And he was like, hey, boys, come on in. And uh, he was like, my, my friend was like, hey, dad, you got any alcohol? And he was like, absolutely. <laughs> Why, I actually do. Why, if I stop drinking it, I die. So I have a lot. It was 1030 a.m. And he was already like on his third uh, like vodka. So that was not great. But he gave him some Irish whiskey. And we, mm. fill, we we rinsed out and cleaned and then filled up uh, part part of the way of a Simply Orange uh, mm. container of Irish whiskey. Nice. Very college of us. And then that evening, I discovered accidentally how uh, what my favorite way to drink was. We went out to my car because we couldn't drink in the dorm, so we had to go to an undisclosed oh, location. Yeah. yeah, I've drank out of a trunk of a car before. It's great. For sure. And so what we did was we just slammed, like, I don't know, five shots 
of Irish whiskey, maybe six, but like within 12 minutes. Yeah, that's a way to teleport yourself to like, wow, my body's committing crimes now. Yeah. So like five or six shots is like, you know, a lot, but not like a ton for like a typical college student on the night on, on a night out, right? But if you do it in 12 minutes... That's you're, speed that, that'll get you. Yeah, yeah. You're here at a party. And so I remember I did that one time. I was not knowing anything. And I was like, that was fun. Whatever. I don't feel anything. Let's go walk to my friend's house. And then we walk over to my friend's uh, apartment. And we're in his bedroom, like whatever, getting ready to go out somewhere. I was like, man, I can't believe I don't feel... Dude, I had that. And then it just... Reality just slapped me in the face. And I was completely... It was like it was like I was sober, snapped my fingers, insanely drunk. Like there was a line, a hard line. I had that. So this is gonna, <laughs> this, is, this is fucking happening. We both know my great friend Danny, uh, and uh, so he was a like the bearer of the brunt of my not knowing how to drink. And mm. so I thought it was like, hey, estimate thirty grams of protein. Okay, so it's like five shots in a coffee mug. Boom. But same thing. I was like, I don't feel anything. Yep. But right when you snapped your fingers and felt drunk, I took five more shots nice and then teleported to my last memory was was on the phone i called danny and i'm like danny i don't know where i am come find me and then i hung up on him and i kept hanging up on him and then uh, he found me somehow well the best part that, that's crazy like the best part about that method at least for me was that i was insanely hammered for like a few hours but then i would i didn't drink anymore i just tapered down until like 12 or 1 a 12 or 1 a.m i was like good to go and i could sleep and i got up the next day and i felt fine that was the way to do it yeah i don't think that's the way to do it because it's very easy to it's a that's a fragile method but okay before let's get back to <laughs> this the game. close out this shit with taleb's confession he says when i don't have skin in the game i'm usually dumb my knowledge of technical matters such as risk taking and probability did not initially come from books it did not come from lofty philosophizing and scientific hunger. It didn't even come from curiosity. It came from the thrill and hormonal flush one gets taking risks in the market. I never thought math was interesting until when I was at Wharton, a friend told me about financial options like I described earlier, and I immediately resolved to make a career in them. I knew in my guts there were mistakes in the theories that used the conventional bell curve and ignored the impact of extreme events. I knew to find these errors in the estimation of these probabilistic securities, I had to study probability, which mysteriously and instantly became fun, even gripping. I felt, so I felt this with the selfish gene book. Like I didn't give a shit about biology to the point that I seriously couldn't explain the female anatomy to you. Like, I, I can work it, but I don't know about it. I'm tinkering. Yeah, that's right. Like, I've learned a <laughs> Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, but once it was positioned to me as like, hey, immoral replicators is the secret to getting rich. I was like, holy fuck. Say what? Yeah, and self-esteem became so interesting. Finally and centrally, skin in the game is about honor as an existential commitment and risk-taking as a separation between man and machine. If you do not take risks for your opinion, you are nothing. And he says, I have no other definition of success than leading an honorable life. And he's gonna non-ironically bring up duels here. Consider duels. People incurred a significant probability of death just, just to save face. Living as a coward was simply no option and death was vastly preferable. And I can't believe I'm not making this up. It's time to quote 300. 
A Spartan mother tells her departing son, come back with your shield or on it. Come back alive or don't come back at all because only cowards and pussies throw their shields to run faster. And uh, Taleb, I'm just concluding this because he hates venture capital and I actually just like laughed out loud by myself when I was preparing for this. Uh, he's describing the new trend of like getting a bunch of funding and doing financial engineering to like flip a company and not taking on any risk. He doesn't like that. He says, this form of entrepreneurship is akin to bringing great looking and marketable children into the world with the sole aim of selling them at age four. Bro, remember, the great heroes of history were not library rats. Now let us close this prologue and first episode with a historical anecdote. Some might ask, law is great, but what would we do with a corrupt judge? He could make mistakes with impunity. He could be the weak link. Not quite, or at least not historically. A friend once showed Taleb a painting of representing the judgment of Cambyses. The scene is from the story reported by Herodotus concerning the corrupt Persian judge Sisimnus. <laughs> Get some damn American names, guys. He was flayed alive on the order of the king as a punishment for violating the rules of justice. The scene in the painting is Sisimnus's son dispensing justice from his father's chair, upholstered with the flayed skin as a reminder that justice comes with literally skin in the game. What the fuck? Jesus Christ, that was just the prologue. If you want to keep going, if you want more, if you want to learn the secrets to life and becoming an actual fucking dragon, you're going to have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. And that's my pretties, is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, The Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end. <laughs>